So, Mike, mm-hmm. can you explain beard oil to me? <laughs> I can try. Uh, I noticed a new trend in the Reddit, which I'm kind of a I'm I'm weirdly proud of. Uh, people uh-huh. have identified me as a hipster now. It's not something that concerns me because I I self-identify in some ways to have hipster tendencies. Um, my music, Pitchfork Festival, you know. Yeah, this is no secret. I think if we go back to maybe the second or third episode, you self-identify as a hipster. It's not like a secret. What's really happening is that people have been listening long enough that they feel that they can openly tease you about it in the Reddit. That's what's happening. So uh, people were mentioning beard oil um, in the Reddit as a, as a joke, and I let the people know that I use beard oil on my beard. Yes, and then I was deeply confused because I thought beard oil was the joke that oh mike is mike is such a, a hipster that like an 18th century gentleman he is shining up his beard with some kind of beard oil that obviously no modern person would use so that's why when you jumped in and said oh why yes i do use beard oil i was confused and i, I like i just think it can't possibly be what i have in my mind so i need to know what it really is it is oil that I spray into my hand from uh, Mm -hmm. like a little container and then rub Mm -hmm. it on my beard to make my beard soft and shiny. (laughs) (laughs) Although I actually use uh, a combination of beard moisturizer and beard oil together and I mix them up in my hands and then, then put it on my face. I have, in some of the meetings that me and you have had, I have been freshly moisturized and oiled that morning. Okay, okay. So I'm thinking... I'm thinking this is like shampoo and conditioner for your hair, but it sounds like not because you wouldn't wash it out in the shower. No. It is meant to be put on after showering. Some people use beard shampoo, but I don't do that. <laughs> do you just use regular shampoo for your beard? Only when it's super, super long. Hmm. But not right now. Not, it's too short now. Okay. You're going to be messing with the pH balance, Gray. you got to think about these things. Okay. Okay. So it's... It's, I'm trying to think of it this way. It's like face moisturizer, but for beards and your beard hair needs this because beard hair is rougher than head hair. Is that, is that why this is a thing? Yeah. Yeah. You've you've got to take care of it if you want it to look good because otherwise it will just get all like bristly and straggly and and, and gross. Like, do you put anything in your hair? Do you use any kind of hair product? No. Nothing? No. Okay. Well, you know, you know that people do, right? In the world, like they put yeah, things yeah. in their hair to style it. Like I also currently, Gray, I'm using a sea salt spray in my hair. Uh huh. That's my uh-huh. current uh, uh, hair product that I enjoy. Is a sea salt okay. spray. Okay. <laughs> this is all true. <laughs> I, I I I just accept it as true. Right? I, like I don't know anymore what things you make up. And what things you don't. It's all just it's all just true hipster stuff. Is, oh, yeah. Is the way that it sounds. Yeah, I and... went to my barber yesterday. Uh-huh. Um, uh, this is not a sponsorship or promotion, but I really like my barber. It's a, a little chain in London called Murdoch. Uh-huh. Um, and I go there and, and I go in and I see the guys. They've all got beards and nice haircuts. 
uh, and mm-hmm. it looks like an old, like you know, an old style barbershop. Uh huh. Of course. Of and course. I go there and they give me whiskey if I want it or beer, and then I go and get my hair cut and I'm chatting with the guy, and then I have a, a like a hot towel on the face kind of scenario and a shave with the cutthroat <laughs> razor. It's my pampering. It's it's, and then I go and get a, a little fancy coffee afterwards. This is my life, Gray. The joke in the Reddit where all the Cortex cool kids hang out, was that Relay desperately needs a podcast called Beard with Mike and some other hipster. And it feels to me like this is just inevitable now, that within the year, there's going to be a Beard podcast. There's a pen podcast, so I don't see why there can't be a Beard podcast on Relay. My only concern with that is people tend not to like it when my beard gets too long. And if I had a beard podcast, I would grow my beard very long. Because I'm happiest when my beard is big. But most people in my life tend not to like that. Yeah, I've seen you with a beard that is what I would think of as far too big. But you seem like a happy guy. You saw me bef- the day before I went to get my beard cut last time and it was it was horrific. I think I had an animal living inside there at one point. <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was a, it was a bit much. So I guess to slightly transition things, are you going to get your beard nicely trimmed and done up? Are you going to go to your little spa somewhere to get all pampered before your talk at the release notes conference that you're going to soon? That was exactly what I did yesterday <laughs> because, of, <laughs> hey! because I'm going away on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> so we have Spiffy Mike right now. Yep. Are you getting nervous? It's a big talk. You're the keynote speaker at this conference that's that's coming up. Yeah, I'm I'm getting a bit nervous. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine myself doing well. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to just implant that that thought into my brain of me being on stage and doing really really well. Uh, but it is a little bit nerve wracking. I feel prepared, not as prepared as I could be, but I still have more time, but I feel pretty prepared. I've put my talk together, I'm rehearsing it, I've presented it to my girlfriend, who always provides good criticism um, where, where needed, she she doesn't hide behind that stuff, so I feel I feel like I'm ironing out some kinks, and yeah, it, it should be fun, I'm looking forward to it. This is being recorded beforehand, mm-hmm. and then we will see how it goes afterhand. On the next episode of Cortex. It was a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and because podcasts exist in this bizarre time, at some point in the future when both episodes are out, people who are listening to this episode right now can just jump to the next episode to hear how it went Mm -hmm. if they want. It's like time travel. In the worst possible way. Yeah, in in a totally ineffective, you can't bet on anything kind of way. But I'm, I'm going to bet on you doing well, Mike. But we'll find out. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. So you have finally found a good use for mind maps, right? I don't know if I would say that I have found a good use for mind maps. Because I don't use mind maps. But there was a thing that happened on Twitter, which I would classify as mind map follow-up, that I was really enjoying. I don't remember exactly who started it. But someone made a mind map showing the connection of all of the various hosts in a corner of the podcast universe. And I thought, oh, this is a thing that I find really interesting and I wanted to encourage it. So I retweeted it. And then uh, over the next few hours, we were getting several different versions of people intensely trying to mind map out, show all the connections in the greater podcast 
universe. And I found this this thing just delightful. I like how you say hours. This lasted for days. <laughs> oh yeah, did it? Sometimes I don't go on Twitter for a while. No, I was getting these for days and days. <laughs> As people are trying to one-up themselves to this one that you've picked out that I'll put in the show notes, which is just ridiculous. It's so large. Yeah, I'm just going to I'm going to open this up now so I can look at it, because at least the last time I looked, I thought this was probably the best one, because trying to mind map out the podcast universe is a is a challenge in information display. Yeah. How can you do it so that it is? comprehensible and that it is followable and also comprehensive it's not an easy thing to do and uh this one i think achieved a nice balance of having lots and lots of podcasts to look at and also being relatively clear to actually look at this is by flow on twitter i like this quite a lot although the only thing i was thinking about with these mind maps is you do have a bit of a problem of whether or not you should count hosts or guests on show my feeling is that the only way to make it sensible is to talk about permanent hosts and there's enough overlap in the podcast world that hosts doing multiple shows is enough of a thing that you can just about connect up everybody but then you get into the question of what is a host what's a permanent person on a show and at the center of this mind map is the incomparable radio theater which feels like it's cheating a little bit to me because it doesn't exactly have hosts it's like an old-timey radio show that draws from a lot of different places so it is rather relatively super connected in the center but i'm i'm on the edge about whether or not all those connections should count like for example i'm connected to the radio theater and i'm i'm in it but not credited oh really yeah i have a couple of like really random lines here and there which are uncredited Mm -hmm. which i prefer because i think Mm -hmm. they're more fun Mm mm-hmm I think I'm going to be reprising my role as man soon, which I'm excited about. <laughs> oh, wow. That's yeah. very exciting. <laughs> Background person number four, huh? <laughs> but yeah, so I highly encourage these podcasting mind maps. No. Nope. The thing... No. Nope. What? Let's encourage them to, to end now. I'm happy no, that no. this one exists. No more. <laughs> Please. No, but see, Mike, see, Mike, here's where I want to take this. Here's where oh, I want to take this. And I think you're going to like it. I think you're going to like it. I don't think I will. What this makes me think of is Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon about the connections between all of these people who are hosting various shows. Yeah, okay, I like this. What I want, what I want is someone to do a Six Degrees of Mike Hurley database. I think you are a good person Mm. to be the Kevin Bacon of podcasts. Yeah, I really want this to happen. This is a this is a great idea. <laughs> because you have been on enough podcasts with enough people that you are highly connected. 6 degrees of Kevin Bacon works because Kevin Bacon is not like is not the hugest superstar of the movie world. Like it's mm-hmm. interesting how connected Kevin Bacon is. And so I think it would six degrees of Ira Glass would be deeply uninteresting to me. It'd be like, oh, boring. Like, I don't really care at all. So I want six degrees of Mike Hurley. I want a database somewhere where we can type in podcast people and see how many connections to Mike Hurley or be able to type in podcast people and see how many connections to connect each other. That's, that's where I want this to go. That's the next step, people. This episode of Cortex is brought to you by Cloak VPN. 
It's 2015, five years after the year we make contact, or were supposed to have made contact at any rate. And yet, even today, a huge percentage of our online communication isn't secured with protocols like HTTPS and TLS. Meanwhile, we find ourselves using our laptops, phones, and tablets more and more on the go on networks that we just don't know how to trust. If you're at a hotel, conference, or coffee shop, you don't know who runs that network or who may be listening in. And these days, cellular carriers seem to think that it's a good idea to inject tracking cookies into our web traffic. Cloak is a VPN service for the Mac, iPhone and iPad that has one and only one purpose, to keep you safe on untrusted networks. Cloak is a little indie software company based in Seattle, and they built this service because they thought VPNs were just too painful to use. Cloak is different. Simply tell it the networks you trust. For example, we tend to trust our home and office networks, and then marvel as Cloak automatically secures you everywhere else. That's right, Cloak is a VPN that you don't have to remember to use. If you trust somewhere, great. If you don't, then it won't let you on. It's awesome. As you'd expect from an indie company like Cloak, they work hard to make sure the user experience is great from top to bottom, with beautiful, simple design to great customer support when and where you need it. But better than simple, Cloak is also serious. For example, Cloak for Mac's overclock feature shuts down your network access in those in-between times when you're connected to an untrusted network, but the full VPN tunnel isn't yet active. It's nearly space age. So, while we may not be racing towards Jupiter to meet the monolith, at least we've got a great solution for staying safe online right here on planet Earth, and that's Cloak. Cloak is offering a full 20% off his subscription plans for listeners of this show. Just visit getcloak.com slash cortex to get started and stay safe online today. Should we talk very quickly about the fact that your iMac exploded? Okay, it didn't explode. Well, I mean, I feel like probably something inside did. That's the way that I imagine it. Like when computers go wrong, like it's like inside. That's what I imagine happens. And just a little trail of just smoke just pops out, but you barely ever see it. It's more like that sad sound that some Macs make when you force quit them by holding down the power button, which I'm convinced some Apple engineer did on purpose. Do you know what I'm talking about? It sounds like two pieces smash into each other inside. Okay, I don't know what kind of made of gears Mac you're using over there. Steampunk. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But on several of the Macs that I have owned, I noticed they all make this sound when they get into a state where it's frozen. There's nothing you can do except hold down the power button. And it's a sound like... I think it is designed to sound like you have wounded an animal because Apple doesn't want you to do it very often. I swear that they've engineered it on purpose because I feel bad every time I do it. And it's like, oh, no, wait, don't feel bad. This is an inanimate object. But it's still, it still, it loops into that part of your brain. But the long and the short of it is I had what I believe is an HFS plus error totally ruin my main computer. And so right now I am talking to you on my little laptop because it is the the working computer that I happen to have. But yes, it is a a tale of woe about what happened to me and my computer one day when I was just minding my own business. Do you have plans in place to deal with these types of things? Do you have like backup plans or do you just be like, well, that's that now then no more work? Well, this is exactly the case of two is one and one is none because Mm -hmm. My life now requires that I have access to a working computer. And I have always been aware that having the laptop in my co-working space 
acts as an emergency backup to the main computer in my house should anything happen to it. And this is exactly what has been the case. That I'm, I mean, as I'm talking to you right now, the laptop is on the table and I have the big dead black screen of the Mac right behind it, like <laughs> looming over the laptop screen looking at me. Do you remember uh, me, Gray? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's... Um, this is exactly what this moment is planned for. And and this this thing that you can do where you kind of shuffle down hardware into other uses as you acquire new hardware, this is the moment that pays off when the newest version breaks because you have a fallback. And even though uh, I'm finding it barbaric trying to work and do the podcast stuff on this laptop because the screen just seems unusably small for all of the stuff that I'm used to when I'm doing a podcast, it is accomplishable Mm -hmm. so i've recorded an episode of hello internet on that we're recording on cortex now and i'm going to be shortly recording hello internet again and it doesn't interrupt the workflow because the big computer if that was my only computer it would be a real problem this week to not have it available well we just wouldn't be able to do this yeah that's what that's what i mean we'd have to like run out and just spend some time getting and setting up a brand new mac and even though the thing broke, I just I haven't had time to be able to dedicate to trying to fix it because other things need to happen. Like shows are scheduled, projects are due, like things need to keep moving. And for the time being, I just need to grab the laptop and go. You buying a new computer? <sighs> yeah, I have ordered. <laughs> <laughs> I've ordered a new computer because... In some ways, this disaster couldn't have happened at a better time because it happened on Friday, I think. And there were rumors on the wind that Apple was going to have an announcement early in the week about new iMac computers available. And so I thought, okay, well, I don't really have time to fix this right now. I might as well wait and just see. And of course, they did come out with a new iMac. So I was like, oh, all right. Time to order this right away. So I I have one being shipped to me as we speak. Did you lose any data? Okay, so here's here's the thing. This needs a little bit of explaining. I mentioned before that I believe I had what's called an HFS plus error on the computer. So I'm going to talk about HFS plus briefly. I'm going to let you, Mike, find all of the shows where John Syracuse talks about HFS Plus and what is terrible about it in vastly better detail than I am going to describe here. So people who want to check that out can go find it in the show notes. But very briefly, there's this kind of problem that can happen on a computer where if you think about it, there's three parts to using a computer. There's the program that you're using, there's the operating system, and there's the physical hard drive upon which the data is stored. And so let's say you're doing something like you're editing a picture and you say, oh, I'm going to edit this picture. I'm going to make some changes. I'm going to change the contrast and the color. And you you click save. And what happens then is the program tells the operating system, I'm saving this file. And the operating system tells the hard drive, write down this information that has changed. And the hard drive is supposed to do that perfectly fine. The way Apple happens to structure their operating system is that there is not an extra layer of check here. So what happens is when the operating system says, write down this series of numbers hard drive, and the hard drive writes down those series of numbers, there's no moment where the operating system does what 
any person trying to, say, read a credit card number over a telephone line would do, which is ask the hard drive, hey, could you read back those numbers so that I can check with the photo editing program that the numbers were the same? Could you read that back just once? Yeah, and don't worry about the noise in the background. That won't affect anything. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And when you consider that over the lifetime of a computer, it is not improbable that you have written trillions of ones and zeros to the hard drive and it has to get it right every single time without checking, it's going to get it wrong at some point. So I had an error pop up on my computer where basically said, hey, the number of files that we expect to be in this folder is not the number of files that are in this folder. And so I thought, "Uh uh-oh, that's an HFS plus error. And looking back on it, the thing that I mentioned on the previous podcast about iTunes not having anything in its folder, that was probably a sign that there was something screwed up with HFS plus and the file system on my computer, right? That's exactly the kind of thing that you would expect if the hard drive is making mistakes writing down what the operating system is telling it to do. Yes, when you just made that big sound of like, oh, that was exactly the sound I made when I first discovered this error was occurring. So the reason, the reason that I tell this long story is so that you, dear listener, can understand that there's a kind of error that can happen where it is not obvious for a long time that an error has happened. Because it's not until you go look at your files and try to open them that you will discover that the hard drive didn't write things down correctly the first time, and either the file is not openable or something in it has been destroyed. And I had a couple of little errors like that happen on my computer, where I went to open a file and it would just not open. And I'm like, huh. So I should have noticed this sooner. Now, the terrifying thing, Mike, is... I have, depending on how you want to count it, quadruple or quintuple backup systems in place for the data that I use. I have various offline backup systems. I have various local backup systems. But when an HFS plus error occurs, it, it, it spreads out and corrupts all of the possible backups that exist. So the answer to your question, did I lose data, is yes, but I don't know how much. And (gasps) there is no way to resolve this problem. So I found, excluding iTunes, the whole thing that I lost, I found two things that were definitely corrupted by HFS+, which were not able to be recovered from backup because the backups just copied the corrupted version. And I wasn't able to go back back in time far enough to get an uncorrupted version because that's what happens. But this is not the backup software's fault. Like nobody has any way to know that these errors are there. And so they're just like, oh, okay, I'm just copying the data. All of this could be fixed if Apple changed the way they structure writing data to hard drives. And this system is very old. And every year, I hope that they're going to change this, but it hasn't happened so far. So the answer is, I may have huge amounts of data that are corrupted, and I just don't know. But I have found two big things so far that have been lost. And it's like, oh, God, this is this is going to be fun over the next six months, slowly learning what things have been corrupted 
and what things haven't and seeing if I have an old backup somewhere of the uncorrupted thing. So like Time Machine or Dropbox versions can't help? Or can they help, but you just don't know? So then by the time that you get to it, it might be too late. By the time I get to it, it might be too late. But you may ask yourself, why would a man have quintuply redundant backup systems? Why? It seems like it's too many. And the answer is, in my experience, when one thing goes wrong, you're almost always guaranteed that something else has gone wrong at the same time. And the thing that went wrong for me here is that my time machine, when this happened, was not yet complete. It had done one of these things where like it started over and it was in the middle of trying to write uh, several terabytes of data brand new to a time machine drive. And I didn't know that it hadn't caught up, that it wasn't fully in place. So the very day that my computer goes down is the same day that I realize I don't have a complete time machine backup. (laughs) So anyway, that's my long story about I don't know if I've lost data or not. We will see. That's harrowing. (laughs) Isn't it, though? And there's nothing you can do about it. No. So I've had a taste of your world. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. YouTube. Oh, yes, yes. Cortex has a YouTube channel, right? Mm-hmm. Because some people like to listen to the shows there, and it's also good for new people to find the show as well, right? Yes. Um, you had previously been managing the YouTube channel, but uh, as was agreed with us, you handed over the keys to me after doing a couple of them, and you created a tutorial video for me um, mm-hmm. so I could understand what I needed to do. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything about this process that I like. <laughs> so first off I had to buy Final Cut Pro which is not not cheap. Mm-hmm. The actual creation of the videos is mostly fine but Final mm-hmm. Cut produces ungodly file sizes. Like I don't know what it's doing to create mm-hmm. the file sizes that it creates. Like the project files are like a gajillion terabytes. It's ridiculous. They're just so large. It's like this is an audio file. And a, and, and a one screenshot just extended across the audio file, but it's like 15 gigabytes. I'm like, what are you doing? That is the funny thing to me, because I was just working on the Hello Internet YouTube channel earlier this morning and creating the next video for that, because I do manage the YouTube version of that for Hello Internet, which is one of the reasons why I was very happy to pass the Cortex uh-huh. channel on to you when we were first talking about who would do what. There are all those, all these things. I was like, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Silly boy. I think it'd be great for you to learn more about video, don't you, Mike? Why don't yes, you yes, do yes. the YouTube channel? <laughs> <laughs> what great practice. Yeah, exactly. But uh, so, yeah, I, I made a video for the Hello Internet channel this morning and when i exported it from final cut pro it was 38 gigabytes in size and like oh wow that's rather large but at least i can understand it because there's something moving on the screen but yes when you upload the ones for cortex and it pops out at 15 gigabytes and it's a unmoving image for the duration it's like maybe someone hasn't optimized the compression over there at final cut headquarters so one of the things I did to get them down is I didn't go with your crazy settings. I just went with mm-hmm. HD because like you were mm-hmm. in, in Grey create this screen console, which is very helpful. 
And in it, you mentioned how, like, I do this at 4K, but you really don't need to do that. <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, I won't do that. Because I every time I was creating a video, I had to delete things from my hard drive. <laughs> right. so it's like, this, this is untenable. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not going to do that. How do you feel about the consistency of the YouTube interface? Do you enjoy the back end with that process of flipping all the switches to get it ready to go? The YouTube interface is exactly what I imagined, but 10 times worse. <laughs> uh-huh. Which is in so much as it is a system which clearly things have just been bolted on over time. And every mm-hmm. time they add a new feature, they do not consider the other features that came before it. So one of the things that ex- that exemplifies this the most for me is the cards and annotations tabs. Ah, welcome. Welcome to YouTube, Mike. <laughs> So I had heard you and you and Brady talk about this stuff on Hello Internet in the past. I think when cards first came out and you were doing yes. the tests, right, to see what worked where and what didn't. Yes. I cannot for the life of me understand why these are different things. <laughs> why are there two different things? Yeah, so for the listeners, what Mike is talking about here is on YouTube, as a video creator, you can create a section of the screen which is clickable for the user. So you want to say, oh, listen to the latest show of Cortex, and there's a rectangle that overlays on the video that you can click on, and then the person goes to the web page that you want to send them to. But this thing where you draw a little rectangle on the screen, it only works on the desktop. If you watch that video on your mobile device, you're not going to see that rectangle. It just doesn't work. And for years and years, YouTube creators were asking YouTube, hey, can you make annotations work on mobile? Because mobile is now like half the traffic of YouTube. It's it's just enormous. And so if, you, if you're, you look dumb in a video when you tell people to click on something and half of them are watching on an iPhone and there's no way for them to click on it. Yeah, it sounds stupid. Like click at this below here and it's nothing. There's nothing there. Yeah, or like a very YouTube-y thing is people say, click on my face, right? And and to go to the thing. But and, oh, okay, but there's nothing that you can do. But so rather than make annotations work on YouTube, there were there were whispers on the wind for quite a while that for whatever reason YouTube had decided that they were never going to do this. They were never going to make annotations work. So they introduced this entire parallel system called cards, which works on mobile and on the desktop. And which it's so hard to even describe what it does, but it it pops up like a little button on the top in the same place every time on the video that someone can click on if they're on the desktop or tap on if they're on their mobile device and then go to the link. But it's a two-step process. You have to click on the button and then you have to like click on the link that opens up on the side. I think cards are done terribly. But the bottom line is if you are a modern YouTube creator, you have to do both of these things if you want to know that everybody can click most conveniently on a thing on the screen. <sighs> so you are, you dear Mike, are enjoying this now of having to do what seems like you should be only doing one thing, yeah. but you end up doing two things. Yep. And it, what that is, is like this is this is a solution to the problem that creates another problem. It's not actually right. a solution. It's just a thing that creates more problems. Mm-hmm. Because now you have to do both, talk about both. It just doesn't make any sense. And they can't overlap because you can't put cards like 
in other places of the screen like you can annotations. Like I look at it and I, I mean, I don't understand about the engineering of their apps, but what I know is that YouTube use a proprietary, a proprietary video player in their apps, right? Especially right. on iOS. They don't use the standard iOS player. So just a part of me that's like, why can't you just find a way to make it work? Yeah, that's the whole thing. It's not as though YouTube is using the default stuff on iOS to play videos. And then you could say reasonably, oh, of course, you can't make annotations work then because you're using Apple's stuff. You're not using your own thing. But yeah, their whole thing is custom. It's their own. They control every pixel on the screen. It's like You can tap on the card, which is on the video. So why can't right. annotations <laughs> yeah, no, be there? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the card is on the video. Why can't the annotations be there? Who knows? But what I think is is interesting about you doing this, because you've never used YouTube before, is what is this experience like for a new person? Like, I'm someone who's been doing YouTube for five years, and so I understand, oh, okay, I get how we evolved to be here. But how do you explain to the average person who just starts using YouTube for the first time why there are these two seemingly at first identical systems that are redundant and nowhere on the page does it explain the most relevant feature which is that annotations work on desktop only cards work on both but you probably don't want to use cards because almost nobody clicks on them that their click-through rate is terrible (laughs) so (laughs) there is no way i would have understood what to do without the video you made. Mm-hmm. Like, I assume that they have some kind of documentation, but, like, on the face of it, the UI and most of the experience of uploading the videos to YouTube is a system that you have to learn, but you cannot learn based on the user interface that you're provided. Right. You have either have to be taught or you have to go through a lot of trial and error. And what probably I would have done is gone through a lot of trial and error. I assume that that is what happens to the vast majority of users. Because on the flip side of this, YouTube actually makes it really easy to just almost accidentally upload a video and have it published immediately. Like that's the way that it is. it kind of wants to go. Is like, upload this video and have it published as soon as it's ready to be published and go. And I think you just learn through trial and error of, okay, oh, how do I set the title? Where do the descriptions go? Oh, I want people to click on things. I, I That has to be what the vast majority of users do, is just do something wrong and then r- try to realize for next time what it is that you need to do. But this is why you can see that I have, just for the YouTube upload process, I think my checklist is 20 items about switches to flip and what box to fill in and what things that I want to put where every time I upload a YouTube video. Because it is ridiculously easy to forget some part of it or forget how some part of it works if you want to actually get it right every time. I've uploaded three videos now to YouTube and every time I've I've done it following the uh, tutorial video that you created. Because <laughs> I just can't, I cannot understand some of the things. Like you put the card in and then you have to set the duration period which doesn't even make any sense. Like, and then you have to start the, the, put the link in that you want and it has to verify it. And like, there's even parts of the interface, what I see is different to the interface that you're showing me, which makes zero sense because it's the same account. This is one of the other fun things that YouTube does, which is, I don't know if they're A-B testing or what, but they often slowly roll out changes to different accounts. And the recent, and I might say disastrous 
update to the YouTube app on iOS was a great example of this, where the app updated, but lots of people were still seeing the old interface. And it's like YouTube is rolling this out in stages. And so you can, as we have done this time, very often run into a situation where like two people are logged into the same account, but just on different computers. And whatever the cookie is on one computer says the interface is going to be slightly different than what the person sees on the other computer. And it's like, oh, okay. That's super helpful for explaining stuff. I mean, again, I can conceive of why YouTube does it that way, but boy, does it occasionally cause some problems. Like all the time. <laughs> I mean, look, so the thing is, the way that the, the Cortex videos are produced, we want to make them in a specific way, and that specific way has been set by the way that you want it to be done. So if, like, if I was starting from day one, I wouldn't need to do it in the way that I'm doing it, and I could learn over time. It, my issue is, like, in trying to make a professional-looking video, there is a ton of stuff that I need to do that I just wouldn't be able to easily work out on my own. And it's like, I, and and the pro, and the main problem for me is there is one company controlling this experience. Like, they can choose. It is not an organic thing. It is not the way it is because that's just how it is. Like, YouTube can make all of the changes that they want to make this experience better. But instead, they are a massive company. You have one team fighting over cards, one team fighting over annotations. So they just decide to put them both in. Yeah. Yeah, this this is, as is a discussion for many people who make a living on the internet, this is the kind of problem that you run into when you are dependent on someone else's platform for your business. And so if you are dependent on YouTube for your video business, which you almost certainly are if you're making videos on the internet, like YouTube is the place where you can make some money doing this, you just have to use their system. And if you have an idea for a better way for this stuff to be done, well, do you work at YouTube? Do you work relatively high up in YouTube? If the answer is no, then there's nothing that you can do about this. Whereas I imagine someone in your position, Mike, like you probably have a lot more control over whatever system it is that you are using for your backend for podcasts because podcasts are not a centralized medium in the way YouTube is. Yeah. I have never loved our content management system more than after I uploaded this video to YouTube. <laughs> like our CMS is not perfect. There are bugs with it. There's things that we would prefer. But if there's something I need to be changed we just pay our developer a little bit of money and he fixes it or changes it. Right. And we've done that constantly. We have complete control over how our feeds are generated, how we publish our shows. I can't imagine now uh, all of my content being controlled so strictly by a company that could make any change or decision that would affect my business. Like, the more and more I know you, the less I understand how you manage to deal with this. Like, I just can't, I just cannot understand how you reconcile this in your mind. I feel, I feel like it's like the, the standby flying thing, right? Like that, that, that's, it's that part of your brain where it's like, well, you can accept that this is the way it's always been. So this is the way I'm used to it. But I feel like you wouldn't maybe do, do it today. You wouldn't go to a new system like this. Well, I mean, the, the, the answer is what I said before, that if your business is making viral videos on the internet, YouTube is really the only game in town to do that. There isn't really an option to do this in another way. 
And I have I have investigated all of the various alternatives that are out there, and all of them fall down in some key feature that makes it impossible. So I deal with YouTube's ugly backend system because that's just the price that I pay. And for me, it's a little bit different than it is for you because I have learned each of these pieces over time. And so for me, it's like, oh, YouTube changes one thing at a time here and there. As in, actually today, as I mentioned when I was doing the Hello Internet video, I logged in and saw that, yes, YouTube had changed a piece of the interface for how the videos are monetized. And it's like, oh, okay, this is just going to be different now. I, I can I can just deal with that. But there really isn't an alternative for hosting videos that millions of people are going to want to watch, like, right in a very short period of time like it's just it's not a it's not a practical thing to try to do on your own and so that's why i put up with the youtube system there was one last thing i wanted to mention about this mm-hmm. which is the processing <laughs> so when you upload a video to youtube it uploads mm-hmm. and then it goes into processing which what i assume they're doing at this point and I actually watched a video that MKBHD did about this once. So I'll put it in the in the show notes. Is mm-hmm. that they are taking your file and compressing it with the, whatever they'd use to compress it, so it can be viewed at different file sizes. Because YouTube create a bunch of different file sizes that they deliver to people depending on the connection that they have. The better connection that you have, the and the faster speed you have, the nicer uh, resolution the video will be. So I assume that that is what the processing system is doing. They're also converting it into whatever their standards are behind the scene. Because I will give YouTube credit that they can suck in almost any kind of video and part of the processing is getting it all the same behind the scenes so that it will just plug into absolutely everywhere. So you can you can throw any video at YouTube and it will pretty much suck it up and then spit out the different resolutions that they need to play across every single player. So I fully understand that and support that and the system is very clever and it makes sense. The problem is there's no indication of what is happening. So it takes an unknown amount of time to process mm-hmm. like you upload it and just start saying processing and then i got an email to tell me that the video were processed so i went to it and it was horrible resolution so i was like oh no i've done it wrong so i deleted the file and uploaded <laughs> it again but what had happened was it had processed but it processed like 240p or right whatever. it had just processed the smallest version of it yeah, and but then after that point, you have no idea of knowing when the high resolution files are done. Like, there's nothing in the interface in the Creator Studio to tell you what's happening and what point it's at. Like, you, it's just you just sit and wait, and it seems like such a strange way of doing things. That like once it's uploaded, it then processes a bunch of stuff happens, but you as a creator get no feedback as to where it is in the in the kind of the system. Yeah, I run into this when I upload my videos because try as I might to do things ahead of time, I have almost always uploaded a video on the same day that I want to publish it. And so I upload it, it goes through the processing phase, and it's available. But since I upload my animations at 4K and 60 frames per second, I never have any idea when that final high-quality version is going to be available. Sometimes it's available in a few hours. Sometimes it takes days. And sometimes I have a few older videos where it just never became available. For whatever reason, it just never got a high quality version. And because YouTube system doesn't allow you to go back and replace videos, it's just, oh, okay, I guess there never will be 
a 4K 60 frames per second version of that video because who knows? So yeah, they're not they're not great about giving you feedback of an ETA for when processing will be done for all of the various file sizes. It's just it's just the whole thing about the system is it is complicated and also opaque in many ways. And I hate it and I want it to die. But it's your job now. It's my job now. Have fun with that, Mike. Go watch the Cortex YouTube channel, people. Make Mike feel like his job is worth it. Yeah, please. Just just go there and do something. <laughs> this episode is also brought to you by Smile and PDF Pen 7 for the Mac. PDF Pen is the ultimate all-purpose PDF editor, and now Smile has some great tutorials for you from the talented Mr. David Sparks, Mac Sparky, host of Mac Power Users on Relay FM. Each of the videos that David has put together are around two to four minutes each and will teach you how to harness some of PDF Pen 7's awesome features, like how to apply markup, annotate, and add a signature to a PDF, how to fill in PDF forms using PDF Pen 7, how to use iCloud and Dropbox to sync PDFs with PDF Pen for iPad and iPhone, how to touch up images, perform OCR to convert scanned documents to usable text, and how to correct and redact text as well. These courses will really help you understand all of the amazing things that you can do with PDF Pen, and there are some additional courses to highlight how you can take it even further with PDF Pen Pro 7 as well. I am a massive fan of PDF Pen. Uh, I've been using it for a long time before Smile was ever a sponsor. And with me running my own business, as we've spoken about so many times on the show, I frequently have to sign contracts or I have to take a document, like a Word document, turn it into a PDF to send to somebody, or I have to redact some text so I can send over a contract to some description. All of this stuff is made so easy with PDF Pen 7 for the Mac. And what I also love is I can access all of these things on the road with the iOS apps as well, PDF Pen for iPad and iPhone. It really is an indispensable part of my Mac toolkit. It puts fantastic power into my hands to help me get my important work done. And I'm sure that it can help do the same for you too. You can learn all about PDF Pen from Smile at smilesoftware.com slash cortex. PDF Pen 7 and PDF Pen Pro 7 require Yosemite and are ready for El Capitan. Thank you so much to Smile for their continued support of this show. Oh, what do you got there? Uh... I have a protein bar here. Oh, wow. We're really going head on with this one. This is like, it's like I'm in the movies now and I'm trying to quietly unwrap something, but it is totally impossible to do so. Terrible, terrible job. I'm sure no one, I'm sure no one can hear this. I'm sure the microphone doesn't pick that up. You know, we get Star Wars a day early here, right? Did you know that? Oh, yeah? Yeah, it comes out on the 17th, I think, or the 16th. Basically, whatever, whatever day it comes out in America, we get it a day early. Wow, go UK. I know. It seems like they're asking the internet to pirate that movie when they do this. Yeah. I probably will not be going to see it the first day, simply because of how many other people will be trying to see it the first day. Yeah, but we have the benefit of being able to go at like 11 a.m. Hmm. Yes, I guess you're right. This is the self-employed stroke unemployed benefit (laughs) of being able to see movies at awkward times. Like, uh, if I don't go to a midnight showing, I'm just going to go at like 11 a.m. the next day. Like, later today, I'm going to book a ticket at that time for James Bond. You may have a point there. I might follow your plan. You should. I like to go. If I ever see movies now, I see them in like the early afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) Did we talk about this? I don't remember if we talked about this in person or on the podcast. I can't remember anymore. Yeah. But the big advantage of when you're a self-employed person 
is being able to try and arrange your life in such a way so that you are out of sync with the rest of the world. Yes, that is, it's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, when you can make it work, it's amazing. And I spent a lot of time figuring out what is the nadir of crowds at my gym? And I basically scheduled everything else in my life around that. Yep. Which is, when can I walk into the gym and there is nobody in the back section where I go? Great. That is now the unmovable block of time on my calendar. And because that is slightly shifted from normal people patterns, everything else about like when I'm getting up, when I'm trying to cross the city, it's like I'm always an hour and a half off of when everybody else wants to do something else. And it is beautiful. It's beautiful. A couple of times in the last couple of weeks, I've been caught in uh, 5 p.m. rush hour tube traffic, and I have been horrified by it. <laughs> it's very, it's very, you very quickly forget what that's like. And it's like, oh my God, this is terrible. Very <laughs> upset by it. The same thing happened to me actually just recently rush hour tube traffic. Ugh. Someone might be listening to us now in rush hour tube traffic. I'm sorry if you're there. But when you don't have to experience it for a long time and then you go back, it seems more horrifying. Like I used to do an hour and a half long commute and I just kind of got used to it during rush hour. But then going back and just just having to be on the tube for 20 minutes, it was it was horrifying. And all I could think of was when I when I made it to the other side, it was like, wow, I got through that. <laughs> I'm still I'm still here. And it made me think there's an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. I don't know if you've ever seen that show, Mike. Have you? Mm-mm, no. Add that to your to-watch list. Will do. But it is, it is good. But the basic premise is that Larry David is a billionaire from having written Seinfeld. And he lives this extraordinarily privileged life. And at one point, he's on a date with a girl. And he's trying to tell her an impressive story. And his, and his impressive story is that he went on the subway once. End of story. <laughs> he drives absolutely everywhere. And he just, that little beat there is the same beat in the show of he's expecting her to be super impressed that he took the subway once and didn't take a <laughs> private driver. I've heard a lot about that show, but I've never watched it. I've actually just um, downloaded some of 30 Rock. I've never seen that show either, but I've downloaded that for my trip because somebody, uh, I saw someone tweet about this yesterday that the Amazon Prime video app on iOS lets you download videos to it. Hmm. So you can watch them on planes and stuff. So you can keep them offline? Yeah. And, and like, but it's not really restricted. It's like, uh, seasons like I've, I've downloaded multiple seasons of shows you've just hit on two of my top three if i have to pick three top comedies this is not in any particular order of all time i would say curb your enthusiasm 30 rock and arrested development would be okay. my top three of all time list i love arrested development so we're gonna, oh, I'm gonna go. watch 30 rock next i think all right let's let's talk about something uh a little bit more meaty and serious than uh, rush hour traffic and that's ad blocking Mm. it's a dangerous topic Mike yeah I wanted to talk about this because it's been in the news recently quite a bit um, mainly because of Safari content blockers coming to iOS Mm -hmm. so Apple's enabled people to create uh, native ad blockers um, and there's been a whole thing around that. And I don't necessarily think we need to spend too much time discussing Apple's own system of it. 
but effectively, it made me think about ad blockers in general. So I wanted to start off by kind of setting the scene for both of us. And then I want to talk a little bit about the business impact and kind of how that fits with the stuff that me and you both do. Mm-hmm. So do you run any ad blocking software on any device? Yes, I do. I okay. run ad blockers on my computers. And now that iOS allows it, I am running uh, ad blockers on my iOS devices. And what are you blocking? Everything? Well, I have not yet settled on precisely what I'm going to use on iOS. It still feels like the market is fresh and a leading contender that I'm also satisfied with has not been established. For the moment, I am using one blocker on iOS and I am using Ghostery on the desktop. Those are the things that I'm using for ad blocking at the moment. Right. So I uh, I don't mm-hmm. run ad blocking software. I don't run any of my computer. Um, I have left Peace installed, uh, uh, Marco Ahmed's Peace app, which is uh, now dis- dis- gone. Marco stopped mm-hmm. making that app and has pulled it from the store. It's a whole different story for a, not another time. And I have left that installed on my phone, but I don't mm-hmm. use Safari on my iPhone or my iPad. I use Chrome. So I only ever, so I don't actively use it, but if I say I'm in like TweetBot and open a page, uh, the ads may be blocked if I'm using Safari View Controller. Mm-hmm. So like if it's just loading with the Safari browser within, but it's not even something that I'm actively doing. I just haven't turned it off. Like I'm, I'm not trying to necessarily block ads. Um, <laughs> right. But you still are. I still am, but not for the majority of my browsing. And it's not really a thing that... I only noticed this a couple of days ago that it was still on. So mm-hmm. it's not really something that I care too much about. I don't really feel the desire, the burning, burning desire to block ads like many people do. Mm-hmm. For a few different reasons, I have these very conflicted views on this type of stuff. And it kind of settles in a few different places that I feel like I sit on and understand the views of both sides in this argument, which is the content creators, um, the Mm. websites, etc., that are putting the ads on and why they're doing it. And then also the readers and users of these sites and products who are trying to just get to the content without ads blocking their path. So, for example, a couple of weeks ago, I spent 15 minutes trying to read an article on the web without my uh, attention being pulled away by a flashing banner ad. Mm -hmm. So I was just trying to read an article on a website and there was a banner ad that was just flashing in my eyes. And I was trying to do everything to try and not see this flashing banner ad. I tried to read the page. I tried reloading it a bunch of times, but it was just replaced with more flashing banner ads. Mm -hmm. I then tried to load it into Instapaper, but that website was doing something in so much that if I loaded it into Instapaper, it wouldn't load images. So I ended up having to read it. I refreshed the page enough times that it just gave me a banner ad that was static and then I could read the the, the article. I like that. You're burning through their ad inventory. Yeah. It's like, I I don't care that the ad is there. I just want an ad that is not actively trying to distract me. Right. Because that's what a flashing banner ad is doing. And that's where you end up in the problem in that the ads and maybe the sales teams of these websites or the other sides of that person's brain, right, the sales type of part of their brain, what makes them put these ads on their sites, are there now to actively try to grab our attention and pull it away 
from the content that is being presented. So this mm -hmm. happens with ads that slide in from the side, that slide in from the bottom, that obscure content and that kind of stuff. This is kind of the practices in web ads today, um, where ads are trying to obscure the page in some way to cover up the content so you can't avoid it. Mm -hmm. Now, I wanted to just, we'll come back to this in a moment, but I wanted to segue here into in my mind, how I have reconciled the advertising that we have against what I don't like about web ads. Mm -hmm. So I make my living on podcasting and my podcasting living comes from the advertisements that we have on the shows. Now, our ads are there, um, but there are a couple of different things about the way that we do our ads. The majority of ads that we do are sold by me. If they're not sold by me, they're sold by somebody else on the Relay FM team. That is the way that it works for us now. We have some agreements with some other parties, um, but we still have a control of the way of what ads are booked and the content of the advertisement. So we don't have a dedicated sales team who's just trying to fill inventory. So we have some, we have you know a, a strong element of creative control over the advertisement that we take, mm -hmm. um, and also our shows are structured around the advertisement spots. So like there isn't an ad playing right now as I'm talking that is trying to hide what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. There isn't an ad that pops in halfway through a sentence. Mm -hmm. You know, like we, on this show, we play little sound effects which clearly denote that an ad has started. On other shows, I would say, or, or another host will say, okay, we're going to take time for a break to thank a sponsor. And it's, built in such a way that like you know we might tease what's going to come up after the sponsor or whatever but there isn't we're not trying to like distract the listener or to pull them away from the content and that's where i feel the difference is because i don't care that the web has ads on it i just care if those ads are going against what i am intending to do on the site that is kind of my feeling about advertising online at the moment and how I reconcile it against the way that I make money. And I don't know mm -hmm. if it's right, but it's just the way that I have come to terms with it and why I'm happy with what we do compared to some of the stuff that I see online. Yeah. This is one of these topics that I am, I am convinced that people get in a real state about it in no small part because it's fundamentally impossible to have a perfectly consistent opinion on it. I just think it's, it's such a messy topic that extends to so many things. It's, it's very, very hard to have something that is consistent all the way through. So, for example, even your opinion, which I think is very well stated of, oh, I don't like the ads that are distracting and I don't mind the other ads... The practicality of it is there is no way for you right now to have an ad blocker that says only distract the top 20% of the worst of the worst ads and let everything through. That ad blocker doesn't exist. And it would be hard to imagine how it could practically exist given the large number of ad networks out there and constantly changing tactics and all the rest of it. So you are in a situation where if you're using any ad blocker, there is in a sense collateral damage that you don't want to happen in theory, but that you can't help from having happen if you are using an ad blocker. 
And so that's why it's, I think it's very, very hard to have a, a, an opinion on this topic, which is perfectly consistent with how you're acting or how you want things to be. And I think that's one of the reasons why people get really upset about it and they have these big conversations about ad blocking. Now, in regards to the way that you make money, you also make your maybe majority or at least a big portion of your money from advertising. But the advertising that you do, you don't handle any of it, but it comes in different ways. So you have the podcast ads where you have known individuals selling for you, and then you have the YouTube ads. So I'm in a bit of an interesting position here because I'm on both sides of this, whereas you do make your income from advertising, but it's also not the kind of advertising which is blocked by ad blockers. As, as it exists right now, there are no podcast clients which automatically skip TiVo-like the ads that are in the middle of podcasts. You could imagine such a thing existing, but it doesn't exist at the moment. So I do make a portion of my income from the YouTube ads that appear at the start of my YouTube videos. So if you click on one of my videos, not every time, but some portion of the time, there will be a video before that. And it's usually one of those videos that you, know, you wait five seconds and you skip or you don't skip. But that's an ad that makes up a portion of my income. And those are exactly the kind of ads that are blocked by ad blockers. So we can say that in a real way, some portion of my revenue is lost out upon because some portion of the ads are being blocked from people who are watching my video on desktop computers. And, and on the flip side, I also make advertising income in the same way that you do with podcasts where they're not blocked. So I've been thinking, I've been thinking a lot about this and it's, it's a tricky topic However, I feel like this latest round of people freaking out about ad blockers is a bit of a tempest in a teapot. I think this is really overblown in very many ways. And the reason I think that is precisely because I look at the ads that appear automatically on my YouTube channel. And if I go back over the four years that I've been doing this, the, in terms of the number of dollars I receive per 10,000 views on YouTube, it doesn't seem like it's changed over time. It doesn't seem like it's gone dramatically down. It's not as though the number of people who use desktop computers are constantly increasing with ad blockers, right? It doesn't, it seems like some portion of the population, some technically savvy and also probably distractible or just able to to accomplish this thing some portion of the population installs ad blockers and maybe that's 10% maybe it's 15% it's hard to know what that what that number is but it seems like once you hit that saturation point ad blockers don't continue to spread we don't end up in a situation where year on year it seems like a higher portion of people are using ad blockers and so I can only assume that on iOS, this is going to be the same pattern. 
I think one of the things that's that's come about though, like irrespective of how many people now install ad blockers, although it is undeniable that there are more people now that block ads than there were before because you couldn't do it on iOS. So any change is more people, right? Right. Any change is more people, but that's I in some ways I don't know how many more people that would be because the way I look at it is especially with YouTube, we can see that over time, a higher and higher proportion of people are watching videos on mobile. And that number just seems to keep going up and up. And I can only imagine that the same people who installed ad blockers on their desktop, who used to watch videos on their desktop and who are now watching videos on mobile, if they have the option to be able to block those ads, they will take that option to block those ads. Irrespective of the fact of how many people are using them or whatever. Now, it has raised a new topic. It's one of those things that ends up becoming a bit of a meme on the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, Now people are thinking about advertising again and they're getting upset at web ads and, you know, people saying that there has to be a change and that kind of thing. I just really struggle with it. I really struggle with it because if you block ads and you rally people around you to block ads, you're affecting the livelihoods of people that don't have control in it like writers and journalists, uh, people like me and you who just want to make stuff and, and they care about what they make and they just want to have a place to put it, the more and more this stuff gets blocked, the harder and harder it is for people to make money in that way. And, and that makes me feel uncomfortable. Okay. I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying, Mike. But I'm not sold on this story. So when I said before that it's a bit of a tempest in a teapot, I think that in some ways what's happening here is a bit of almost a bit of almost like the same kind of distortion that I have complained about with the news, where the news in general focuses on things not in proportion to what they actually are. And so with the ad blocker thing, if you imagine, say, there was uh, a flu going around the world that happened to only affect people who work in television newsrooms and in newspapers. Nobody else would catch the flu, only they would. I think you would hear a hell of a lot about this flu going around and how important it is that we figure out how to come up with a cure or preventative medicine for this flu. Because the people that it affects are the ones with huge megaphones. And so the ad blocking thing I think is a bit like this, where companies that are going to experience some decrease in mobile revenue, which I'm not convinced is going to be a huge number decrease in mobile revenue, they also have enormous megaphones to complain about it. You're just hearing a lot about this in way disproportion to what it actually is. Because even when you say someone like you or me were going to be affected by this, like straight up, I am not going to be affected by this. Like if if many more people use ad blockers, it won't it won't affect my business very much because I have tried to diversify the business to protect against this. So now, of course, the thing that people would say is not everyone is able to diversify in this way, right? I have set up a Patreon account and explicitly one of my rewards is ad block absolution, which is the lowest, the lowest tier. If someone gives me a dollar when I put out a video, it's a bit of a joke like that they have ad block absolution from me. 
if ad blocking is going to affect any kind of company, it seems to me that the the places that are affected the most are just like these the worst kind of aggregator websites that are on the internet. Websites that they don't particularly have any individuals that you really care about, that they're websites that are just producing an enormous amount of semi-anonymous content. And I think those are the same kinds of sites that would have a very hard time ever transitioning to any sort of membership model, which is something that you see a lot of websites doing. So, uh, for example, um, Vitici over at Mac Stories, he recently started up a membership model. Many, many websites are starting up a membership model in addition to advertising as a way to diversify. But a membership model, it works best if you are producing things that some group of people intensely care about. And I think one of the ways that you, that you get followers or readers who intensely care about a thing is you're producing stuff that is very high quality, or you're producing stuff where people feel like they know you and they like the thing that you are producing. So if you are, let's say, a news website where if 20% of people start using ad blockers, if your revenue goes down 20% and that's really damaging to your business, and you're also not able to convince any users to sign up for any kind of membership. I feel like yours was a business on the edge already. Fundamentally, if you can't transition to other sources of revenue, it's in no small part because like nobody really cares a lot about the thing that you're making. Like you're just you're just another news aggregator or reprinter on the internet. You're not a thing that people like enough to sign up for a membership. Okay, I understand what you're saying, and I, and I get where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is, every individual that blocks ads is one individual who will not be contributing money towards the website, towards mm -hmm. any website. So mm -hmm. let's, let's pick, you know, we will create a website called The Smurge, Right. Okay. Excellent choice. Excellent choice. The Smurge is a technology news website, which is uh -huh. very, very large. And the Smurge employs a bunch of people who really care about what they do. Um, and they use ads on their website. Now, they are not a news aggregator. They create content, which is, uh, I believe, well, I would believe if such a website existed, uh, is very good. And I like it. But they also have terrible ads in some places. And if the Smurge has a million readers a day and 10% of those people go away, then it's 10% of their income that they lose, right? right? And every single person, every one individual adds and contributes towards this. So this organization now makes less money than they needed. And a lot of these companies, they probably, I would assume, spend what comes in. So they end up in a scenario where they have less money than they did before. But everybody's still going to the website. They're just blocking the ads now. And now this company is suffering because of that. 
And yes, they may be using ads that aren't great, but they are the ads that exist because it's the only ads that they can use to fulfill the money that they need. As a reader of The Smurge, my question is, if you are continuing to go to their website and read their content, what gives you the right to think you can get it for free? Okay. So uh, I was talking before about how it's very difficult to have a, a morally consistent opinion on this topic, that I think it's, it's fundamentally impossible. There's a, there is a level to this argument, which I think is, is a level, kind of a level above what is happening in the particulars with ad blocking. And it's, it's one of the things that over the past year, I think I've really, I've really come down on it or clarified my thoughts on this, which is, I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to think of a good comparison, but it's, but it's almost like in United States law, when you have tricky court cases, one of the things that judges will try to do is they say, okay, well, let's, let's try to look at the constitution and what are the broad principles that the constitution is laying out. And let's try to not get mired down in the details of this. I almost feel like there's a, a kind of implied technology constitution and if 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 i were writing it i would have one of those elements be that a user should have control in as much as is possible over the machine that they are using if there's a case that's very complicated and it's on the edge you should err in favor of the user having control over their machine and i think this is one of these cases where I would err on the side of the user having control. So that, yes, there is there is kind of no moral argument to say, I am correct in that I should be able to view a website without having to participate in the implied contract of viewing the ads. I, I don't think you can make an argument for that. It's like, well, it's not right. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's stealing, but it, I think it falls into the category of things that are like copyright infringement. Not stealing, but not great. But nonetheless, I am more in favor of users being able to control their machines. And I think that ad blocking is one version of that where it's like, okay, fundamentally what's happening here is that my computer is receiving data from another computer and I wish to manipulate that data in some way. And I'm going to come down on that side if the situation is unclear. Like, I think that would be one of my more guiding principles. But it doesn't mean that everybody's happy, right? Like, that that principle absolutely means that some people will be upset. But it's kind of like freedom of speech in, in America, right? Freedom of speech doesn't mean that everybody's happy, right? That's, that's not what it's trying to achieve. But it's like a guiding principle for difficult decisions. So you're talking about control, right? Having the control of your machine. Yeah. So I I think the implied argument that you're making there is that the control is that you get the right to enable an ad blocker. Yeah, basically. That's that's what I'm saying. What if the control is you just don't go to the website? Without a doubt, that is an option, right? A user can say, oh, I'm simply not going to visit the website. Mm-hmm. And that that can definitely be their behavior. But I'm trying to take the difficult case here of sure. someone is explicitly saying, no, I want to go to the website. I want to visit the Smurge every day. I want to click refresh hundreds of times. And I never want to see a single ad on the Smurge. And I'm saying that, okay, 
even in that situation, if we have to make a broad decision, I think it is it is better to err on the side of user control than it is to ensure that a company does not miss out on revenue. And again, this like I am in the category of these things. Like people use ad blockers when they watch my videos, and I know that, and I know that I lose out on revenue because of that. And I'm still fine with this decision of like I'm not going to morally condemn anybody who has only ever watched my videos with an ad blocker on and has never donated to my Patreon. I I will not morally condemn that person. Like what is the control that you feel that you're giving away? Is it the control of what the page looks like or is it the control of the the trackers that many of these websites use to to track your information? <sighs> when I mean control, I'm kind of talking about a a general purpose computer situation like oh i have a machine in front of me that i can program now i absolutely know that at this very moment there are angry android users firing up their email clients to tell me about how apple has totally locked down the iphones and you can't do anything with them and if you're so in favor of user control why are you using an iphone like i totally understand that uh, i'm just saying like i'm in favor of more control i'm not in, i'm not looking for absolute control with my device so i think this is a situation where Apple has allowed the user to do a thing and some people are taking advantage of that option and I think that they should be able to do that. But there is definitely, um, it's so bound up in the ad side of things, but there is there is definitely a privacy argument to be made. And when I first started running Ghostry a while ago, Ghostry is a, an ad blocker, but also just a tracking blocker on the web. And I hadn't used it ever, but they have a little option where it'll pop up a little bubble at the bottom, which will show you all the things on the page that it blocked. And I have to say, I had my breath taken away by how many things were loaded up on so many websites. Like I just could not believe the number of trackers that appear on normal websites. It was quite astounding. And I specifically went around to some sites just to see like what is where and the amount of stuff that is keeping track of where you are going all the time is is much bigger than I would have thought. And I think I I should have been more aware of this than I was, but my my interneting experience is relatively constrained. Like I don't go to a lot of general websites. My experience is I spend a lot of time on Reddit and Twitter and Hacker News, and I follow some individuals on the web that I like, but I don't really go to a lot of broad websites. Like, let's say, our theoretical smurge. That's exactly the kind of site were it to exist that I wouldn't necessarily spend a lot of time on. But seeing the way some people in my family use their devices, I can see what other people's internet looks like. And it's sometimes horrifying. Like, my wife definitely complains about these horrific ads that follow her around on the internet. And I've heard other people talk about how, you know, like stuff follows you from site to site. And I've seen people I know just have difficulty even trying to navigate websites. And so this is what I mean about the control of the device that you're using of, you know what? This is my machine and I don't want ad companies following me from place to place advertising things that I just don't want to see. And it's like, I own this machine. I should be able to block this stuff. Or I'm trying to get access to this information and I just want to make it as clear as possible. 
So that's that's kind of what I mean about a user having control over over their own device. I, I'm very conflicted about this, mm-hmm. and I think it's it's I think it comes across in the the way that I basically talk around and around it. Like I don't know how to feel about it. Yeah. So like the main thing, like one, the main reason that I've left Peace installed is because the one the thing that I don't like is how long it takes uh web pages to load and how large they are in some instances because you know, and I've left it only on my iPhone and only in apps like Twitter because I'm usually so like for example, like you know, cuz I only ever use Safari in like when I'm in Tweetbot, right? Cuz Tweetbot just opens it in Safari in a Safari view. That's because I tend to be out and about when I'm looking at that. So I'm burning through my data cap um, because websites are very, very large. But whilst we've been talking, I have unlocked my phone and gone to the settings app like four times mm-hmm. to remove peace. Mm-hmm. And then I keep coming back from it. <laughs> I've heard this discussion from many people. I've read about it from many people, many of my friends. And, and it's most people take the exact view that you're taking right now which is, it's my device. Uh, I don't want to see the crap that you're showing me. Um, I don't want to be tracked by you. So I am taking my right and installing an ad blocker and I will never see the ads or I won't be tracked by you anymore. But like, there's just part of me that's like, I don't know if that is, if that lines up with my morals mm-hmm. um, as to what I think is, is acceptable. And I also feel like for many people, what they say is the biggest point is doesn't line up. Like, for example, the people that, that mainly complain about being tracked. Um, what if you just turned off the tracking but still saw the ads? Would you be happy about that? And I think that most people would then go back on themselves and say that they also don't want to see the ads as well. Yeah, I won't back down from that. If there was an option to say, just turn off trackers and not also turn off ads, I wouldn't take it. Right? Yeah. I would block the ads as well. Which I believe basically everybody that uses a content blocker would take that exact view. Um, so I feel like that the tracking stuff is a MacGuffin in the conversation. It's for many people an excuse to say why they think it's okay to block the ads because companies shouldn't have the ability to track them around the web. I just think that the tracking thing comes up because for a lot of people it strikes them as creepy in a way. And it is... It's just another, it is another layer to add to this conversation. I think the, perhaps what is the creepiest intersection of tracking and advertising is, uh, I saw this article, uh, I'll, I'll leave it to you, Mike, to find it for the show notes. But it was, uh, it was some report about a product that Google is developing, which they called Google Match. Did you come across this? I think so. So the outline, this is one of these stories where I was, I was thinking, did somebody at Google float this so they could see public reaction before they're actually going to announce it? But the, the broad outline as reported by like sources inside Google was that Google's developing this program called Match where an advertiser can upload email addresses and specifically try to target those people with ads on the web through Google's system. So if you have a database of a bunch of Gmail addresses, Google knows when those people are logged in browsing around in Chrome, and you can advertise to those people specifically. And I think that's the kind of thing people would just find really creepy to know 
exists. Do you know who doesn't? Who? Me. <laughs> yeah? You don't think that's creepy? No. It's just like somebody sending a piece of mail to your home. That's all that is. So I used to work in marketing. That was what I did right. for a living before this. You were one of these guys. So I know like the power of data. Right. And why it's good to have this stuff. Because like part of the problem with web ads is that they are too general. They have the tracking data on you, but they're still advertising to a broader audience. And one of the great things about targeted email ads and targeted mail, like postal mail, is that you can give someone something that is more specific to them. So when it's used in the right scenarios, this could be really good. You could get a tailored offer from your supermarket, which could be of benefit to you. But like, you know, the fact that they have, they already have this email address, they're going to advertise to you anyway. Maybe it's best if the advertising that they get is targeted to you more specifically. Because to me, it's like nobody gets really creeped out that they get junk mail or these offers sent to their home. That doesn't freak people out. That is your home address that these people have. <laughs> that is way more dangerous than an email address. But like, it doesn't bother anyone about that. Like People don't like that they get it, but they're not like, oh, I need to move. I need to put an address <laughs> blocker on my home and like hide my door number. Nobody does that. But it's the same, if not worse, in my view. And there will be millions of people that would disagree with me. But that's how I feel about these things. Like That type of advertising is more likely for me to be useful than the stuff that I see now. So point to Mike in that conversation. That's an excellent point you scored there. Thank you. And you are definitely right that there's a bit of a sub-argument in this conversation, which is about targeted advertising. And in my mind, there is some line which is crossed by the email thing. But in general, I don't mind more targeted advertising. And as an example, I actually think YouTube is pretty good with their pre-rolls most of the time of broadly speaking, guessing what I might be interested in. I have to say, the more and more I watch YouTube, which is becoming more and more of a thing for me, the more ads I do actually watch. Right. And, and so I have long thought that the YouTube five-second skippable ad is the best ad unit in many ways that exists on the internet because it only briefly takes your time and the amount of time Google gets it right of like, oh, you know what? I do want to watch this game trailer before I watch this video is surprisingly high. And I'm all, it's also funny just because my wife uses YouTube for her music collection. I can see the ads that pop up on her computer sometimes for YouTube. And it just I can broadly see that they have a whole different set of ads that they show her that I never even see. Right, but she's not getting ads for, uh, you know, like, oh, the new Doom 4 trailer came out. Right? That never pops up on my wife's computer. And I don't get her ads and vice versa. And I feel like, oh, that's just perfectly fine. I don't mind that at all. Yeah, like all you get is like notifications of the new Rachel Platten single and stuff like that, right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't mind that. But there's something where the individual thing even though your analogy about the house is absolutely spot on, it just, it flips something in my brain 
And I also feel this from the opposite side where, because I run a, a big email list, like I have about 75,000 people on my uh, email list on my website. I would feel like a monster if I uploaded that database into Google's new advertising program and then told Google, I want you to follow these people around with ads for CGP Gray sweatshirts wherever they are on the internet. I think that's a great business idea. (laughs) This is the marketer inside you. But But this is the thing is like, almost certainly that would be a profitable thing to do because web ads are just so cheap. And even if I just sold a couple sweatshirts, it would probably cover the advertising costs. But I would still just feel like a monster. I would feel like I was I was reaching into individual computers to show these people an ad that I want to show them. And I, I, I would not be comfortable doing that at all. But, but, <laughs> even, but Even if you think it's a great business decision, Mike. But... Uh, but the people on your email list are the people that will most likely want to know there is a hoodie. The hoodies are super comfortable. I'm actually wearing one right now. I'm sure you are. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. I really am. <laughs> I believe you. The other thing to this, though, for me is your email list is a targeted advertisement platform, especially with the way that you run it. Because... People that subscribe to your email list can check the boxes of the things that they want to hear more about. So when Cortex began, we were able to tell those people that said, I want to know about CGP Grey podcasts, that this existed. That as a targeted advertisement platform. That people opted in for it, so it's nicer. But that's the kind of thing, right? Like That is the way that this stuff works. It's the way that this stuff grows. Because whilst you are a restrained human being, and maybe I'm not so much... You sort of see that as the beginning of something that could become very useful and profitable because people are willingly giving you some kind of information, right? But do you see what I'm saying? That your email list is a marketing platform for you, of people that care about what you do, and they. So, like in the idea of uploading these email addresses, if it is your bank that does this because they have an offer that they want to get to you, but they can't get it to you, that is a great way for them to get that offer to you on the web. I just. I feel like you're in full marketer mode here, Mike. <laughs> it's something that I really cared about. Like, So it was why I, I didn't like my job, but I liked the fundamentals of what this stuff was about. Yeah, I know, I know. And it's it's one of these things where I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, I agree with the individual words that you're saying. When they're all together, I don't like it one bit. I don't like it at all, even though there's no part of it that I can argue with. This episode of Cortex is also brought to you by the lovely folk over at Igloo who make the internet you'll actually like. If you work in a company that has a corporate internet and you use it every day and you look at it and you think, why is this so terrible? Why did the person who makes me use this program think that this would be something that we would like? It's ugly. It works badly. It's slow. I can't use it on my phone. I can't use it on my tablet. It doesn't give me any of the integrations that I need. Then you 
need Igloo. If you look at your internet every day and feel like it was built in the 90s or was designed by somebody who must actually hate you, then you need Igloo. Because with Igloo, you don't have to be stuck at your desk to do your work. You can manage all of your tasks. You can share status updates from wherever you are on your phone, on your tablet, on your desktop PC, on your laptop. If it gets an internet connection and has a web browser, you can use Igloo. Igloo understands that these days everyone is mobile and they believe that you should be in your work too. Igloo is also super customizable. You can make it look the way that you want and you can also make it act and perform the way that you want for different teams. So if different teams in your company need different functionality, then you can set that up. If one part of your company doesn't need to be able to share status updates like a Twitter microblog-like function, you can remove that. If one part of your company doesn't need to see documents, you can remove that too. They have role-based access permissions. It's all easy and drag and drop. They have a great widget editor, so you can reorganize and customize the platform to fit just how you work. Igloo also integrates with third-party services like Box, Google Drive, and Dropbox. This stops people from taking documents out of your company and putting them in their own accounts with these services because they can be integrated into Igloo, which keeps it all secure. They have 256-bit encryption, single sign-on support, and active directory integrations. If you know what this is, then you'll know just how safe and secure Igloo is. I mentioned a document collaboration engine a moment ago. This allows people to upload documents and all stay on the same page, and you can also track who has read critical information with read receipts as well. It's time to break away from the internet you hate. Go and sign up for Igloo right now and you can try it out for free for any team of up to 10 people for as long as you want with no catch. So sign up at igloosoftware.com slash Cortex and you'll also be supporting this show. Thank you so much to Igloo for their continued support of Cortex and Relay FM. But anyway, getting back to the content blockers. I can't see myself ever seriously running an ad blocker and I, and I think I'm going to turn piece off again on my iPhone mm-hmm. just because as I expect it would probably happen when I start to talk about this I get very emotional about it I think mm-hmm. and and I think it's it, it is partly because my living is made this way with with advertising and the kindness of our listeners to support our advertisers but like you know I feel like I'm not necessarily in that world because of the way that we we do our advertising. Like if we had one big company that was selling our ads and there's nothing we could do about it and it wasn't me and you, it was like random people talking in the middle of our shows. Like we get pitches from companies that want to do this. And I'm like, are you crazy? Like that's horrible, right? So like we do it slightly differently. So I feel a little bit removed from it, but I still just, I just can't help but feel for the people whose livings are provided by it. Whether you think it's right or wrong, whether you think that the smudge should or shouldn't exist and it's just collateral damage that these people lose their jobs. There's just a thing for me where I can't, I just can't reconcile it in my brain. I just can't do it. Yeah, I still, we, there are many points. We have had a big, long conversation about this, but there's just a couple of things I want to try to reiterate as my main points here. And the big one is I am just not convinced that ad blockers on iOS will have a significant actual impact on the sites that have complained most loudly about ad blockers. And the sites that complain most loudly about ad blockers seem in general to be the same sites that have the worst, lowest quality ads that exist anywhere. 
I, I think there's there's a there's a real overlap in that. And I still say that that the the story is told as though like oh the smurge is going to have to close its doors and we can't continue on in business. And I still I still feel like okay look if a 10% hit in revenue forces you to close your doors something was going to make you close your doors anyway. Like you were a terrible, unstable business to begin with. And if you can't find some other way to earn money from what you claim is a valuable thing that you are producing, like I'm not convinced you're actually making something valuable that lots of people care about. Like if the thing that you are making is something that people want, you should be able to figure out a way to make money off of it that is not just the lowest of the low ads on the internet. And I just want to have another little clarification point here for for the listeners. When I say the lowest of the low, I don't I don't even mean like oh these pop-up ads or these ads that slide in from the side. I mean just in terms of the ad rates that you get from these things. And so having had my foot in several of these businesses, it can just broadly say without being able to go into specifics that advertisers are the most willing to pay for podcast ads. So an ad an advertiser will pay the most for a podcast ad per thousand listeners. And I think part of the reason that happens is because one, the hosts are reading the ad themselves. So there's some connection between the audience and the person who's reading it. As as I think you've always said, Mike, there's an implied endorsement there, even if there isn't an actual endorsement. Do I want to clarify that a little bit because that endorsement is a dirty word. Right. Um, because an endorsement says, you say this product is, yes, it's good. And we have had conversations with some companies that we do not sell endorsements. We sell right. sponsorships. And a host can endorse a product if they choose to. And many right. of the scripts that I write have a little section in that say, if you would like to talk about your experiences with the product, you can say that here. But mm-hmm. we purposefully do not present ads in the first person unless they are an endorsement. Otherwise, right. it is a read. Because I don't feel like we have to specifically all use the products. But it's if we believe that it is a good product and a good fit. Like, for example, let's say that I mean we, we have Smile as a sponsor on this show. And I love Smile's products. Other hosts of some of the other shows might not use them. But they trust my judgment that they would read the ad that the product is good because I use it and like it. So we have a, as a group. So like there are other uh, we we have an advertiser on Mac Power users who has a Mac app that I don't use, but I know that Katie uses. So I'm happy. Do you see what I mean? Like it's like a yeah. We if we if we, any of us can agree that this is a good thing, then we will advertise it. But it's not necessarily a personal endorsement in every situation. Right. I just wanted to take that sidebar. Sorry. No, no. You, you please, please do right because this is an important point here about why are advertisers more willing to pay for podcast ads, and part of it is the host reading it. Part of it for what you guys do at Relay, and also what I do at Hello Internet, is a selection of podcast ads, and I do the same thing. I don't use every single one of the products that is advertised on Hello Internet, but I will never say oh, I love and use product X if I don't. But if I have used a product and I do like it, I'm totally happy to say it. Like I never want to have an ad on that show that I feel uncomfortable with. 
But the next level down is that there are companies that kind of sell mass podcast ads, and I turned away from using those very quickly. And the price of those were lower because it felt like it was one step down, where it wasn't like curation and selection and something mm -hmm. that I'm very happy talking about. And I got much, much lower rates for those kind of ads on podcasts. But we're taking a step now from like curated, intensely personal, if they can be ads, down to the host is still reading it, but it's slightly more mass market and it's not as carefully selected. And it's like, okay, well, now the price is gone down a little bit. Then the next level down is stuff like YouTube ads, which as we have referenced before on the podcast, pay so little compared to podcast ads, like several orders of magnitude less. And then below like the YouTube ads, there are just like banner ads and kind of your standard Google AdSense ads. And man, if you're running that kind of stuff, and to a large extent, that's what I see a lot of these Smurge-like sites running, you have to generate enormous amounts of views to get small amounts of money. It, you just ungodly numbers of views. And so that's what I mean by like sites using these, these bottom-of-the-barrel ads. They just don't pay very much. And... I just, I feel convinced that they don't pay very much and the sites can't figure out other ways to do it because they're not producing content that people intensely care about. That that's why it's very hard for them to transition to other business models because if they're trying to start up a membership, it's just nobody really cares that much. And so that's also why they're using those same ads and they're like stuck in this position. But even all that taken together, I'm still not convinced that their businesses will go out of business because it is many steps to install an ad blocker on iOS. And it is a complicated thing to do on the desktop. And most users just never, ever do that. It's always going to be a small percentage of the audience who are doing this. But, but my feeling about this is these things begin and then they grow. And I feel like this is a beginning of something. So, so that's why I'm like, I feel like I need to understand my stance now. And I think I, I think I have, I think this conversation has helped me solidify it. And I have turned off peace now. If, if the situation remains the same as it has been, I will not be using an ad blocker. Part of it is it actually echoes something that you said earlier. Like my internet usage the places that i go is very limited mm -hmm. um i don't surf the world wide web like the majority of stuff that i find is websites i choose to go to or links provided by people on twitter which are typically people i follow that are owners and or writers of a certain website mm -hmm. and i don't want any of those websites to go away so the way that i feel like i can do my bit for that is to accept their ads no matter what they might be. And if, because the situation, I was happy before Safari content blockers. Mm -hmm. I never complained. And I don't complain now. So I'm just going to stick with how it used to be and see how I go from there. That's how I yeah. feel. But I don't, I don't think that I, I, I don't judge other people based on my own views on this because everyone has their own reasons. But I just feel like I wanted to share my thoughts because I haven't heard many people talking on the podcast that I listen to in the way that I am speaking. Mm -hmm. 
So that's that's where I stand on this. <sighs> Look at you, moral Mike. That's what they call me. <laughs> oh, yeah? Is it? Now it is. Do you have anything more you want to say on this? I have a lighter, uh, a, a lighter quick topic that I wanted to bring up. I don't know. The problem is I'm looking... I have so many notes on this topic and I feel like we have had a very convoluted conversation. Mm-hmm. And as always, I'm very nervous when we are recording about how it actually comes off oh, in yeah. the end. Oh, yeah. Because the thing, the thing about podcasting versus, say, writing an article is in podcasting when you're talking you're just saying things out loud and you don't you don't have the opportunity to think like let me refine that sentence so it is clearer what i mean and i feel like i have i have just left behind me a long series of unclear sentences so maybe we will have to revisit this in the future but i am looking at just so many notes and i think this is just so tied up for me in how people make their money online and like what kind of business models are successful and whether or not people have a right to demand that things work in a certain way. It's like, it's very hard for me to pull this out. So I think for the moment, we're just going to have to leave it as it is because I don't know if an infinite amount of talking will clarify this successfully right now. At the end of the show, I have a a little (laughs) bit of follow in for you, which I didn't address earlier. Can you explain for the listener what follow in is, Mike? And also, who was the creator of Follow-In? You are the, currently the creator of Follow-In. What do you mean currently? There's no currently. I am the creator of Follow-In. Okay, you are the creator. Congratulations. <laughs> um, so many people will be familiar with the term follow-up, right. which is something that we do at the start of episodes. Many podcasts do. Um, John Syracuse, who we mentioned earlier, is credited as being the... the uh, Whilst not necessarily creator, the instigator, I guess, of follow-up and the idea of where follow-up exists in a show right at the front and it's all that kind of... He set many rules that many podcasters follow now. Um, And then when me and Jason Snell uh, started Upgrade, Jason created something called (laughs) Follow-Out. Right. (laughs) Which is where uh, the hosts of a podcast will give their thoughts or views on another podcast that they listen to. Right. It's basically doing follow-up, but not for your show. Yes. <laughs> You're doing follow-up for somebody else's show. And also providing feedback, but not through an email. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, Gray uh, recently created something called Follow In, where he, <laughs> as a host of another show on the same network, asked a question of another host on another show via me. So he asked Federico Vitici of Mac Stories and Connected a question um, about something that had happened on his show. I'll put a link in the show notes to the episode. It's right at the start. You can go and listen to it. It's too much yeah. to go into right now. It's, it's follow in because the way I, I was viewing it was I wanted to insert via you a follow up question for Federico on Connected. I mean, I could have just asked him on Twitter, but I thought this was funnier to do this way. So now Federico is reversing this process and he is inserting a follow-up question for me, I'm presuming, yes, on this show through you. <laughs> just so people are up to date with all the podcasting terms. Yeah, just so. <laughs> if, if the podcasting universe was not enough for you, you now have this right. to contend with. 
So, like many, many people, Federico was fascinated by your love of fight song. Okay, again, I never specified that I love fight song. I know that you're trying to make this a thing. Fight song was a tool that I used. That song is in my head a lot. Uh huh. I want to let you know. Even though mm-hmm. I've only listened to it once, or maybe twice. It's a catchy song. Uh, but my problem was I listened to one very small clip of that song multiple times. <laughs> That's right. what's in my head all the time as I was editing the, the our last episode. And Federico, like many people, uh, sent me a screenshot of him listening to that song. Uh, and then asked the following questions. Has Grey ever been to a concert? Uh... Rarely, and mostly a long time ago. So, yes is the answer. Yeah, the answer is yes, but I mean... Not in, like... I mean, even now, I'm stretching the definition of concert to mean live music. Sure. I'm going to say not in, like, eight years. Okay. Did you enjoy it? (laughs) Given given my previous answer there, what are you going to speculate? Well, I would say no. However, there could have been some, like, radical change in you, you know, that you loved it then, but now hate them. No, there, there has been no radical change. I, I do not enjoy concerts, and my limited experiences with them have been, oh, this is a horrible combination of two things. One, it's just boring. It's deathly boring, because there is never a scenario in my life where I would pay attention to music with 100% of my available mind. Like, oh, I'm supposed to just stand here and just watch you play music and nothing else? Like, are you kidding me? This is not this is not adequately interesting to justify this amount of attention. And then secondly, for live music and concerts, I always just feel, oh, I'm just listening to a worse version of the song. You could have gone to a studio and recorded this and make sure that everything sounds right and tweak it to be its best possible version. But instead, I'm just listening to you sing it off the cuff and you're not doing as good of a job as you could in the studio because in the studio you can spend the time to make it the best that it possibly can be. So no, not really a fan of concerts. Didn't you once amass hundreds of people into a room and sit on a stage with some friends and talk to them for a couple of hours? You're talking about the Random Acts of Intelligence show, uh-huh. which was a one-off thing in Alabama, which was amazing and oh, super yeah. fun. But it was also not the five of us going up there and doing exact versions of things that we were already extraordinarily well known for. For example, I didn't get up there and try to live go through the entire script of my United Kingdom Explained video. That's that's to me what the concert stuff is like. Oh, I'm going to do this now, but I'm going to do it slower and with more errors because I'm trying to do it live. Whereas when I can record it and edit it, I can do it fast and perfect every time and it's better. There's no comparison here. But you do know that everybody in that room would have very happily listened to you read that script, right? You do know that. I don't know that. I, I can't conceive that people would want to hear that. Right, but see, this is the difference because... Many, many thousands and thousands of people enjoy exactly what you are saying is so horrible. I mean, I won't say that they're wrong to enjoy it. That's the way their brains are wired. But Mm -hmm. I just don't understand this. 